Today's reading is from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, thank you, Sheila. Hello, everyone, and happy Mother's Day. Welcome to the Disciples Church Podcast. My name is Dave Hahn, and I am grateful to spend this time in God's Word with you. Many of you who know me or have spent time at Disciples Church know that I have a Greek Orthodox background. I spent the first 10 years of my life attending the Annunciation Greek Orthodox Church. If you don't know it by name, it's the spaceship-looking building with the big blue dome on top on 92nd and Congress in Wauwatosa. Now, what you may not know about that building is that it was built by architect and designer Frank Lloyd Wright. And he built it for his Russian wife, who grew up Greek Orthodox. He was inspired by the Hagia Sophia Cathedral in Istanbul, Turkey. And that's why he referred to the Annunciation Project as the Little St. Sophia. Construction of the Annunciation Church ultimately was completed after his death. Now, even more of you may not realize all the symbolism that Mr. Wright put into the design of Annunciation. The two elements that Mr. Wright's wife asked him to focus on were the dome and the cross. Domes because of their prevalence in Russian Orthodox architecture and the cross for obvious reasons. So everywhere you look, both inside and outside the building, you will find domes and crosses. The archway above the door is a dome. The stained glass windows are dome-shaped. And of course, there is the big blue dome which serves as its roof with a big gold Byzantine cross at its center. Even the overhang of the roof have dome shapes within it, each of them meeting at a sharp point, creating something that symbolizes the crown of thorns placed upon Christ's head. The Annunciation Church was also built with the theme of threes to symbolize the Holy Trinity. For instance, the church has three spiral staircases, and the lighting up the center pole of each of the staircases are shaped like Byzantine crosses. But you have to look down from above to be able to see it. There are also three sections of seating on the first floor of the sanctuary, and in each of those three sections of seats are four rows, representing, of course, the four Gospels. Now, if you were to count up all the rows, you would have 12, you guessed it, representing Jesus' first disciples. So though my grandparents attended this church from day one, my parents were married there, and me and my brother and sister were baptized, christened, and confirmed there as babies, and though I attended church there for a good portion of my childhood, it was not until I was in my early 30s after taking a tour of the building during one of their festivals, and after spending some time looking deeply at it, that I became aware of all its hidden beauty, 
its symbolism and significance. So as I was thinking and praying about what psalm to speak on this week, Psalm 23 was the first to come to mind for a few reasons. But then I thought, no, it's, it's too familiar to people. I won't be able to add anything meaningful to what's already been said. But God reminded me, both in and through prayer and conversations about it with others, that there is an inexhaustible depth of meaning and beauty within his word, even in the most familiar of passages. Just as there was much more to be discovered in that beautiful, seemingly familiar church that I spent time in. So today we're going to look at a beloved and well-known psalm, Psalm 23. And as God's Spirit leads, we'll get to do two things. First, we'll be reminded of Psalm 23's deep truths and eternal promises for God's people. And we will have our eyes and hearts opened to truths and beauty we have not yet seen, though it is not the first time, very likely, that we have looked upon it. Beginning in verse 1, David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now the first half of this verse is a sermon unto itself. And so today, it will be. (laughs) We'll look in depth at verse 1 today, and next week, we'll look at verses 2 through 6. Kind of a to be continued, if you will. Now this was a last minute decision on my part, so if it doesn't work, You can blame Jonathan. (laughs) There are three parts to the first half of verse 1. First, it is the name David uses for God, the Lord. Now, Jonathan reminded us a few weeks ago that the word Lord, spelled in caps as it is here, represents the name of God, Yahweh. It's the personal name of the God we worship, a name so sacred that Jews would not pronounce it or write it down. Friends, let it not be lost on us that God has revealed himself to us, even his very name, that he did not and has not remained hidden or unknown. And just as he knows us, we can know him. And David is reminding himself and letting you and I know that this is the Lord and God he is referring to. He is not referring to just any God here. He's talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a personal, intimate, and covenantal God in whom his people could take refuge and find their salvation as their shepherd. The second big part of this first half of verse 1 is this. The Lord is my shepherd. Some of the significance of Psalm 23 may get lost on you and I because of its central theme. A shepherd and his sheep. It makes sense that David, this psalm's author, would use such a metaphor. After all, he himself was once a shepherd boy. But very likely, none of us know a shepherd. I I know I don't. And what most of us know about sheep is anecdotal or through visits to the state fair. But the idea of God being a shepherd to his people is not an unfamiliar idea in the Bible. As early as the book of Genesis, we see God referred to as a shepherd. 
and it is often used throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, where thousands of years later, Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd. The idea of God being a shepherd was a beloved idea, even into the early church after Jesus' death and resurrection. You can even find paintings of shepherds carrying sheep over their shoulders in Christian catacombs. God being referred to as a shepherd is remarkable and significant in this way. The one true God who makes and sustains all things, who is worthy of praise and our service to him, has stooped down low to take care of you and me, to feed us, guide us, govern us, to defend us, heal us, love us, and give to us good things. I mean, what other world religion can make such a claim? Yes, the Lord is king. He is deliverer. He is a rock and he is a shield. But he is also a shepherd. But not just a shepherd. The Lord, David says, is my shepherd. And here we have the third big piece of the first half of verse 1. God is not only a shepherd to his people in a broad sense, but through faith, he is my shepherd and he is your shepherd. God is personal and intimate, not indifferent or detached. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this idea. He said, a sheep is an object of property, not a wild animal. Its owner sets great store by it, and frequently it is bought with a great price. It is well to know, as certainly as David did, that we belong to the Lord, and there is a noble tone of confidence about his sentence. With David, there is no if, nor but, nor even I hope so. But he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And is it any wonder why this psalm is so beloved, my friends? And that it is so often used in times of trouble and distress. Is there anything we want more in the midst of difficulty than one who personally cares for, comforts, and defends us? And David is saying that's exactly who God is. Now, of course, we can't talk about God being our shepherd without first recognizing one major implication of that idea. You and I are sheep. And as unflattering as it may be in certain times and places to be called a shepherd, it is far worse to be called a sheep. Sure, they're fluffy and adorable, and my wife squeals whenever she sees one, but sheep, by all accounts, are also dumb. They move slow. They're quick to wander off, unable to defend themselves, and they're easy for predators to kill. So to truly declare, the Lord is my shepherd, one must first recognize his or her sheep-like nature and our great need for a shepherd to see that we are foolish, dependent, and prone to wander. And if you're finding yourself refusing Christ as your shepherd, it is likely that you do not see yourself rightly. You don't yet recognize your sheep-like nature. 
Maybe you believe that you're self-sufficient, though you can't take a single breath without God having given it to you. Or maybe you believe that you've done enough good things to earn his favor, though you know that you haven't even lived up to your own standards of goodness, much less God's righteousness. It's time to admit your need and let go of self-righteousness. It's time to come inside the sheep gate, my friend. There is plenty of room for you. Now looking at the second half of verse 1, we get the so what of the first half of the verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What a declaration. I mean, you could almost add a therefore between the two phrases. That's how tied together they are. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore... I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, and because he is, I shall not want. So not only do we have a shepherd to care for us and give us all we need, but our shepherd is the Lord, maker, sustainer, and ruler of the universe, all things subject to him and belonging to him. And he is the one who watches over us, provides for us, and cares for us. What more would we ever need? I love how the NIV translates verse 1. This is actually one of the reasons that I started thinking about doing Psalm 23. Verse 1 of Psalm 23 in the NIV reads, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. How great is that? Do you realize that if God is your shepherd, you lack nothing? That he gives you everything you need, as you need it, when you need it. But the question is, do you believe it? Do I? Do you know how different our lives, our world, and our prayers would look if we did? Peter talks about God's provision in the first few sentences of his second letter. Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1, he writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Friends, God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I think that we struggle to believe this idea for three big reasons. First, we falsely believe that we supply our own needs. Second, we have our wants and our needs mixed up. And third, we think we know better than God. Nothing drives this idea home more than being a parent. The tantrums that are thrown over these mistakes are legendary in most homes. I know you think you need to eat the entire bag of Sour Patch Kids that I bought you, but you don't. Or, I know you think you need a $300 pair of wireless earbuds, but the free headphones that came with the phone that I bought you will work just fine. Parents, you can 
insert your own example here. <laughs> now, of course, as we get older, we begin to discern the difference between our own wants and needs and recognize some of the wisdom of our parents. And maybe as we get older, we'll even start to recognize that we aren't as smart or self-sufficient as we thought we were. And instead of throwing tantrums, we justify our reasons for needing something that we just really, really want. Or we freely admit we don't need that thing and use what we've been given to buy it anyway. Now, don't hear me saying that you can't have things that you want. And don't hear me judging anyone on this. Those decisions are between you and your spouse if you're married, and ultimately you and God. The point I'm trying to make here is this. Almost none of us have ever truly been in need. We have been given what is necessary for life on earth, likely with seasons of more or less, but never truly lacking. That's one of the blessings of living when and where we do. And it is God, our shepherd, who we have to thank. And it is God that we are to depend on in times of need. For me, I, I haven't always known and loved Jesus the way I do now. But if I were to look back, my lifelong experience and testimony has been, I lack nothing. God loved me, provided for me, and cared for me long before I was his. Isn't that your testimony too? So how much more then will he give us what we need now that you and I belong to him? As one commentator put it, for David, the fact of God's shepherd-like care was the end of dissatisfied need. He said, I shall not want both as a declaration and as a decision. I shall not want means all my needs are supplied by the Lord, my shepherd. And it means I decide to not desire more than what the Lord, my shepherd, gives. Have you ever considered that the majority of our frustrations and disappointments come from misplaced or unmet expectations and desires, even our frustrations with God? So the next time you get upset because someone didn't do what you expected them to do or give you what you wanted, ask yourself these questions. Is this expectation or desire reasonable? Is this a want or a need? Can or should this person provide it to me? Has this expectation or desire been clearly communicated to this person? And finally, was this expectation or desire agreed upon by this person? Have you ever asked God for something, not gotten it, and felt disappointed or frustrated? I am guessing that your head is nodding yes at this point, but be encouraged because so is everyone else's. Have you ever wondered why that is? Here's what Pastor Tim Keller had to say about it. He said, 
your level of disappointment is directly connected to where you have placed your hope. Your level of disappointment is directly connected to where you have placed your hope. And so here's the question that you and I need to ask. Is our hope in the things we desire or is it in God himself? So if you find yourself frustrated with God because you haven't gotten what you wanted or things haven't gone the way you thought they should, let me ask you to consider two more questions. First, is it possible that God never promised that thing to you to begin with? Remember, he knows what you need better than you do. The second question, is it possible that he intends to give that thing to you, but when or how he does so is different than what you expect or prefer? Friends, be encouraged. If the Lord is your shepherd, he will deny you no good thing. Listen to Psalm 84, 11. It reads, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Be satisfied, brothers and sisters, in the Lord, your shepherd, and ask that he grant you a heart which desires nothing more than what he gives you. In John 10, Jesus spoke these words. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Because our good shepherd died, we are forgiven. Because he rose again, we live eternally. Because he sent us his spirit, we are permanently indwelled. And because the Lord is our shepherd, we lack nothing. Oh, that God would cause us to know it's true, to believe it's true, and to live as though it's true this week and evermore. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we thank you for your word and spirit through which we know Jesus Christ as shepherd, as Lord and Savior. May those who confess your name today never cease to wonder at what you have done for them and what you will do for them. Help them to continue firmly in the faith, to bear witness to your love, and to let the Holy Spirit shape their lives. Take them, good shepherd, into your care that they may loyally endure opposition they may face as they serve you. May we with all your children live together in the joy and power of your Holy Spirit, trusting you to supply all our needs. We ask this, Lord Jesus, in the hope of your coming. Amen. Well, it's awesome to be with you this week. We'll get to do it again next week when we'll look at verses 2 through 6 of Psalm 23. I really look forward to it. Until then, my friends, God bless.